Hey there, my name is Mike Joseph. I host and produce Detoxicity, which is the podcast that you were just about to listen to. I hope that you have been listening and enjoying uh, for the entire time that we've been doing this. If you are new, welcome. If you are a listener of Longstanding, welcome again and thank you. Um, I appreciate the fact that you listen to this podcast. If you listen and enjoy, please feel free to leave a comment. Please feel free to rate on iTunes or any other podcast platforms that have the ability to rate. And please subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. Also, I would love it. It's not a requirement, but I would love it if you followed me on social media. I am on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph, that is T-I-S-M-I-K-E-J-O-S-E-P-H, and I'm on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy. I don't need to spell that out for anybody. I'm also on TikTok. I'm not on TikTok, but you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. And if you would like to be on the show or you know somebody who'd be a good fit for an interview on the show, feel free to reach out to me via either of those two platforms, or you can drop me an old-fashioned email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Once again, that is detoxpod at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy. Some of you might know that Detoxicity is not the only podcast that I host and produce. Along with my music-loving friends Jeff Giles and Jason Hare, I host a podcast called FM to MTV, which focuses on the pop music that the three of us grew up with, albeit in very different environments. In addition to being music nerds and great comic foils, I have been friends with Jeff and Jason now for over a decade. Jeff and I collaborated for a Detox episode a few weeks back, and now it's Jason's turn. Our conversation takes quite a few turns as it covers Jason's career as a child actor, his relationships with his parents, his children, and his partner, his activism, particularly on behalf of the trans community, and the ups and downs of our own relationship, which has weathered some turbulence over the years. I hope you appreciate listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Here's my friend Jason. I am Jason Hare. I am a human. I am a, a husband, a father, a triathlete, a, an artist, a sometime musician, a sometime writer, uh, and a recovered actor, and, and, and a, a, a person who is very lucky to be your friend. Oh, you don't have to kiss my ass now. You're already on the podcast, no, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> It's true, though. I've been looking forward to this conversation because it's different from anything I've done. And, you know, trying not to compare what my experience will be on this podcast to some of your other guests. Sure. Every person I talk to is an individual and everybody's got their own unique story. And I'm in a different head every time I talk to somebody. So I feel like each one really kind of takes its own, its own form. Yeah, I, I I sent you some thoughts on some topics. You, some you of, did. You gave well, me the most thorough notes of any person that I think I've interviewed thus far. Well, it's funny because what I was doing was as I was driving around, I was listening to other episodes of your podcast. Some of it would kind of inspire me to think about the things that I wanted to think about, which I think I was much more in touch with when I sent it to you or when I was like writing it down. And now I feel even a little separated from it. But what I had said on the email was like, here's a bunch of stuff that we could talk about, but I'm going to look to you to put it into some kind of cohesive form and not make it seem like it's just some random therapeutic mishmash <laughs> or, or, un or unloading. But I'm an open book for the most part, and I'm happy to talk about 
things, more vulnerable things and, you know, things that are antithetical to, I guess, the typical masculinity, which I know is what this show is about. That encompasses 3 million different things. Absolutely. We met through writing about music. And one thing that that literally just popped into my head is that I don't know much about how you grew up. I know of your parents. I've met your mom once. I've never met your dad. I've met your brother maybe twice. I've met your wife a number of times. And I've met the elder of your two children. I've never met your youngest child. Or maybe met him when he was a, a very, very tiny baby. So I know bits and pieces of the Jason Hare origin story, <laughs> but in, in, it's like a coloring book that's only half colored in, kind of. Yeah, sure. Well, let's see. I, I grew up on uh, Long Island, not in Long Island. If you're from Long Island, you know that it's on Long Island. I grew up on the North Shore of Long Island, a town called Port Washington. And I've never, I've never lived out of the state, just kind of a, a, New, York, a New York kid. My childhood was stable. My parents were together. My parents are still together. I can't say that I had any particular super hardships growing up. I grew up in a middle-class background, a nice town. Mostly got along with, with my parents. Always was very close to my mom. My dad and I have had a very tenuous relationship over the years. He was kind of dictatorial in a lot of ways. Really kind of set in his ways and is a yeller, so I can also be a yeller. Really? Which, yeah, the look that you have on your face, that's a look I get often when I tell people that. Because I'm um, surprised. I, 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 in the 10 or 11 years I've known you, have never heard you raise your voice. Yeah, no, I'm a default hot temper yeller around my kids and stuff like that. And I'm trying really hard not to be that person. But there's a lot of default kind of ingrained behavior there. I don't like the way it physically sure. makes me feel. But anyway, I had a pretty stable life in in Port Washington. Went to University of Buffalo when I graduated from high school. Was there for five years, did two majors. Stayed the fifth year, kind of finished that major, kind of had to hang out with my girlfriend, who is my wife now. And then moved back to the Long Island area and then to Queens, which is where I was living when I met you. Correct. And then moved back to Long Island briefly and then moved to upstate New York. And we could probably delve into any any, any part of that. And, oh, and, I already and, got questions. Any, many, <laughs> many things in between. Go for it. Go for I it. already got questions. You almost seem apologetic about the fact that you had a relatively drama-free upbringing. Yeah. Maybe that's a function of kind of and let me know if this sounds weird, but maybe that's kind of a function of talking to you and knowing some stuff about your background and being like, I didn't have that. I had drama in my life for sure, but I did not have any any huge traumatic experiences to be honest. But I do tend to apologize for a lot of stuff. Like, like, Is there a Canadian in your family somewhere? Yeah, right. <laughs> a lot. A lot of when I talk comes with like disclaimers and apologies and stuff like that that probably do not need to be there. But yeah, I, I mean, you shouldn't apologize for having had a good upbringing. I yeah. believe that those of us who did not have great upbringings sort of wish we were in your shoes. Sure. But you being in those shoes is nothing to feel sorry for or ashamed of. I do find. The the yelling thing to me just is so out of character to how I picture you. Mm-hmm. And 
I do, just from my own personal experience, I know how really bad habits that you grow up being around can manifest themselves as you get older and maybe go through some of the same experiences that your elders did. When it happens, do you notice it and you're like, oh shit, like I'm doing this. Are you conscious of it when it's happening and what do you do to try to stop it? I am conscious of it when it's happening. I'm not, not awesome at stopping it. I am very good at apologizing for it, which is not anything I ever heard growing up. I don't think I ever really heard any apologies for the way I was treated or anything like that. And I am very much the other way in, in all of my relationships. I learned a long time ago in my relationship with my wife, the power of, of admitting when you're wrong and apologizing. I, I find a lot of strength in that. And I have no problem saying to my kids as recently as today, you know, I'm sorry for what I said, or I'm sorry for how I acted. That wasn't right. I, I shouldn't have done that, you know, but I still, I still have those moments, you know, it's like, like earlier tonight, like right before we were recording this, I was downstairs, like switching the laundry or something. And my son was just doing that thing that kids do to their siblings. He was just deliberately antagonizing my daughter and she's, screaming at him to get away from her and he's not doing it and i'm all the way downstairs so i'm like yelling up to him like stop it you know like like that kind of thing and i'm just like that it, like it doesn't it's not helping anything it doesn't get anywhere the very best that it does and i use best in error quotes the very best that it does is create some fear in my kids and sometimes when i yell i do see them like flinch and jump and that eats me up inside because I don't want my kids to fear me. I don't want them to be scared. Like I can see my son flinch sometimes when I yell and I'm like, oh, that's not good, you know? Or I can just, I, or I'll say an unkind word to my kids or whatever. And, and I feel awful about that stuff. But for what it's worth, I will come back to them and say, hey, when I did this, when I said that, that was really not right. But I don't know if my kids, they might be like, Hey man, you apologize so much. What value does it have? Well, because I'll say that to my kids too. I'll be like, you keep saying you're sorry, but your behavior isn't changing. And if I can't master that at my age, why do I expect a kid in single digits to know it? You know? Yep. That's that's a weird thing, right? Like we we expect, I mean, I'm not a parent, so I guess I should excuse myself from that particular equation. Mm -hmm. We expect things out of our children sometimes that we don't give ourselves oh yeah <laughs> yeah yeah uh, kids aren't dumb I, I i think in some cases or look at least in my case i think i recognize that pretty early and at least internally not necessarily called bullshit but realized something was wrong or, or something mm. was like the, the words and actions aren't necessarily matching up. So what the hell? But I do think that it's important to apologize. If you mess up, you say sorry. It's important to instill the, the fact that you are not perfect, that you don't expect perfection, and that we all make mistakes. I think, you know, again, kind of calling that back to my own experience. I, I don't think I've ever heard I'm sorry from an elder in my family and it would do a lot of good even now to hear yeah. somebody be like hey i fucked up i'm sorry 
So yeah. I mean, kudos to you for doing that. At this point, my dad is softened in a lot of ways, which is something that like my wife and I have gone through as I've evolved as a partner. There have been times where we've talked and, and I've seen her reaction to something that I've said or whatever. And I've said, I think the way that you're reacting to this is understandably based on how I may have acted in the past. You know, we've been together almost just under 25 years. So for her to look at years, for her to maybe years one through, I don't know, 10, 12, 15, 20, who knows? You're like, different people. Yeah, different people, but I understand where it's coming from. Like, I understand, like, if you if you dealt with one version of, of me for that long, I understand why it would take you a commensurate amount of time to change your reaction to that. And in fairness, when I say that, she'll acknowledge it usually because, because I am a different person. I get that. To switch topics a little bit, two things that I know about you that are kind of antithetical or that someone might think are, are antithetical. One is that you're a smart ass. And the other is that you're very sensitive. Mm. And I'm mm. sort of wondering where either of those or both of those came from. Well, I think th those both come from my parents. So my dad is a definite smart ass, quick, quick with a comeback, quick with a funny line, um, quick to be outrageous or silly or be foolish. And I've always taken that from him. So, and I, and I'm, and I've, I've never been embarrassed by it. Like even as a kid, when you're supposed to be embarrassed by your parents, my dad didn't embarrass me when he did ridiculous stuff in front of my friends or acted silly or whatever, that stuff never bothered me. And the, the people that I'm closest with in my life encourage that, <laughs> you know, are, are, are cool with it. You know, our friend Jeff will, he will goad me on forever. So he'll just encourage me to continue to be a, a smart ass. And the sensitive part comes from my mom. I, I just have a very open and honest relationship with her and always have been very close to her and have been able to tell her most everything. So I can talk to you and have a smart ass conversation, but I feel equally comfortable just calling you or telling, texting you and saying, I love you. My dad is also, he's also very affectionate with the people that are his friends. So he's got long-term friends from when he was in college in the sixties and stuff like that, that he will still call up all the time and have loyal friendships, even when I think haven't even deserved his friendship, but he will still do that. He's like the kind of guy that like kisses all his guy friends that kind of thing. So sure. I didn't really grow up with a sense of masculinity at all in terms of having to be a, a tough guy. I suppose being a smartest in a lot of ways could be like a defense mechanism for growing up as a short kid. And is that where you're going? You read my mind, you know Jason. <laughs> you literally took the words out of my mouth, or at least the, the question that I was formulating. You were never bullied for being short or anything like that, were you? And I mean, to be fair, you're not Gary Coleman. I mean, you're maybe an inch shorter than I am. <laughs> I'm how tall? How tall are you? I'm five eight. Yeah, no. So I'm five five. Oh. And I think when I entered high school, I was like four eleven. So I was a shorty. Okay. And then I hit five five at the end of high school, and that was kind of it. I wasn't bullied. I think, I, but I was teased for sure. I was teased growing up for for a bunch of things. I was teased for being the short kid. I was teased for being the theater kid. For being the music kid. I was an artsy kid. I wasn't into 
sports at all. And I wasn't good at any of them. And until I got to high school, I didn't have friends that were musicians, that were actors, that were stuff like that. All my friends, they played baseball and soccer and football and stuff like that. And I just wasn't that kid. So maybe being a smart ass was my way of, of kind of keeping up with those guys. And I had a reputation around some of my friends for mouthing off to people that were bigger than me. Okay. No, because I was a, because I was like a shrimp. So I think for most people, it was like, this isn't worth my time. Like it, it just feel like just it was, like, it was too low hanging. He's fruit. a pipsqueak. He's a pipsqueak. You know wow. what I mean? I, that's at least the, the way I think, I think about it. But I mean, who knows? I think me being a smart ass was a good way for me to kind of keep up with everybody. That makes sense. It's interesting. Cause I'm thinking you grew up on long Island and yep. Most of the Long Island dudes that I know are, even the artsy ones are kind of broish, And <laughs> I don't know if I'm making a bad generalization or uh-huh. it, it's, it's my sample size. The, the people that I've met, people that I've worked with that are Long Islanders have generally mm-hmm. been on the bro side of masculine. So you to me are kind of an outlier. Mm-hmm. Particularly us being <clears throat> this, the same age and coming from a different era than someone who's maybe 25 or 27 or 18 and has grown up with different and significantly more varied ideals of what masculinity can be. Yeah. I've never really thought about whether my friends are, are broy, but I know that when we all reached a certain age and I decided that I did not like to drink um that became a thing with some of my friends where like i felt like i could not hang with them because i was the perpetually sober one and i had some friends that would give me a hard time about it which was really hard for me in my 20s and doesn't every group of friends want one sober person to drive everybody home Yeah, I don't know. I don't think the, I don't, uh, people didn't look at it in that way. I just always felt like, oh, this is going to be a night where everybody goes out and drinks a lot. And drinking's never really been my scene. I did it, I, I drank for a while. And ultimately, like, I think there's probably two things there. There's probably going on to a different topic, but I am somewhat of a control freak. So <laughs> I don't really like being out of control. Sure. I don't mind it, but ultimately, what I found when I did drink is that whatever effects I, I had from drinking too much, nausea, any of that, any of that kind of stuff was never, ever, ever worth it to me. It's really like, unpleasant. And I say this as someone who does drink a lot and, and I, and I don't, I have no judgment on it. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but when I do drink to excess, and it's the next morning and I'm nauseous or I have a headache or I don't want to get out of bed or whatever. It's kind of like, why do I do this all the time? Like, what am I getting <laughs> out of it? Yeah. I had a couple experiences, maybe two or three, I can remember one in college and a couple post-college where the next day was just so miserable. And I, I remember there was one time in college where me having too much to drink on like a Saturday night resulted in me not being able to come through on a commitment to a Mm. whole group of people that I had actually organized for a Sunday. I had 
highly influenced everybody else to to commit to this thing for this Sunday. It was something related to my theater program at college. And I was too unwell to attend it. And people were pissed at me and they were right to be pissed at me. And that was one time where I was like, this isn't worth it. Clearly, I don't know where the line is. And as my wife always says, she's always like, well, someone's got to drive my drunk ass home. And that's totally fine. I've gotten used to the position of being I guess I'm not in it that much anymore, but I got used to being in the position of the one sober one around a bunch of people who are very, very happy in a different way. You're serving a great purpose, Jason. Right, right. But, but I felt separate from my friends for that. It was rough around the time when we were all around the age that we were getting married and bachelor parties and going to Vegas and stuff like that. And I was like, I'm just going to have to somehow muscle through this weekend of everybody drinking and me not. I shouldn't be made to feel like I am less than. Absolutely not. But, but it's totally funny, Mike, you know, my wife and I just got back from going on a short three-day vacation up to Lake Placid. And a couple of nights ago, after we had dinner, my wife said, I feel like going out to a, like a, a nice, like, cocktail lounge or something and getting a drink and i was like yeah okay that's fine i'm figuring like i'll just sit there and not drink anything while she drinks which makes her feel bad that wasn't my intention but we got to this place they had like these really like cool concoctions this guy was not a bartender he was like a mixologist right Uh one of those guys that puts together really fancy ass drinks so jessica my wife got her drink and i was like i don't drink can you make me like a mocktail and he was like, yeah, totally. And he made me the same thing that she had just without Alcohol. the tequila in it. Sure. But I still felt like apologetic and awkward and weird asking for it. Because even the name Mocktail is a shitty name. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> they could probably use different nomenclature, but. No, totally. But I was also like, how do I say those words to a bartender? Do I go? I'm the designated driver. We, we, we were in a hotel like a block away. It was like almost embarrassed and apologetic for it. And it's like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't feel that way at any age. You shouldn't. Um, there are plenty of people who are teetotalers or straight edge or in recovery at this point that I don't think it, it would yeah. be that a big a deal. You know, and I've, I've gone through dry periods and I have no problem going up to a bartender and going, hey, I'm going to have a, cl- <clears throat> a club soda or a Diet yeah. Coke or whatever it is. Like, if you, as the proprietor, have a problem with this, on you. Right. It's on you. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And so, yeah. And it's funny that you said it like that, because I think now at this point, it's probably more my own hangups and insecurities than it is anybody giving me a shit and uh, giving me any shit at, in my mid forties for that. Yeah. You know, so. I want to talk about theater. Sure. Because I've known you as a, a performer for the entire time yep. that I've, I've, I've known you. Yes. It, what, what's really funny is that you went to college with one of my best friends from high school who I did not know as a performer, even though we spent more or less every weekday together for four years. But I mean, even like he was in band or whatever, and that, that's kind of the extent of, of, of what I knew of him. Were you always into the arts? Was that always sort of your, your thing? Yeah. Yeah, from absolutely. From the time I was five or six years old, I was enamored with performance. 
I was enamored with singers and piano players and all that stuff. I, when I was five or six, I saw my parents must have rented back when VCRs like first were a thing. They rent or, or it was on TV or something. It was on HBO or something. They rented the, the, the jazz singer, the Neil Diamond yeah, movie, which I think is shit, but I haven't seen it since I was six or seven. So I don't know. I'm pretty sure it's shit. But in any case, I was like obsessed with that movie and that soundtrack. And I think it was because there were all these shots of Neil Diamond like singing to this audience. And I loved, I loved that idea of that. And then, and then I got into piano through Billy Joel, which I'm sure we will talk about at some point on an FM10 TV podcast. We did a Billy um, Joel. Did we not do a Billy Joel? We did we not, not do a no, Billy Joel episode. Elton. Holy crap. Wow. Yeah, we did Elton. I talked to Jeff about um, that. Right. But, well, I, so I got, you know, I got into music through there and I started playing piano um, when I was six or seven years old. And I, and I still, I, I play almost every day. And you're sitting in I, front of a piano right now. That is true. Right. That's true. So it's, and, and so, and so you're, yeah, we're years where I did not have a piano. I did not play every day, but it's in front of me and I, I play and my daughter plays now, but anyway, so there was music and was always a big part of my life from that early age. And then when I was, I want to say like nine or 10, my elementary school, one of the classes did like a, a in-class production of you're a good man, Charlie Brown. And I remember watching the kid playing Charlie Brown and being like, I want to do that. And it wasn't long after that, that I remember in, I saw in the newspaper that there was going to be an open call audition for the movie, Lord of the Flies, the remake that happened in, I think that was like 87. I remember that. Um, I had my parents take me to the open call and they were just looking for the kids down the island. I think there was a group of 20 kids maybe or so and, and it narrowed down to, I think, obviously nothing ever happened with that, but that was enough where I was like, oh, okay. So I, I got to drama club in my junior high and then I got into professional acting. I went to like an after-school acting program to learn a bunch of stuff and from there, around the age of 13, maybe 14, I, I got a, a manager and agents and I started auditioning for stuff. And so I booked, I booked my first national commercial when I was 14 for stovetop stuffing. And it was, I wish I could show it to you. Someone uploaded it to YouTube and now it's gone. And, uh, I auditioned for lots and lots of stuff, lots of TV and film. I wasn't at the same level, but I was on like the same circuit as like Elijah Wood and like Macaulay Culkin and stuff sure. like that. Like uh, some of the early, like Leo DiCaprio stuff. Like I was going out for some of that. Oh, was Leo DiCaprio in a boy's life? He was. With De Niro? He was. Right? He was. Right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I got, a, I got a couple callbacks for that. The Good Son, which was the Elijah Wood Macaulay Culkin movie. Right. I did a bunch of stuff. I came very close to booking a role on a TV show called Brooklyn Bridge, which was a Gary David Goldberg joint after Family Ties. I know it sounds weird to say Gary David Goldberg and joint, joint in the same sentence. Anyway, I got very close on that and didn't get it. And then kind of puberty hit hard to my face. And I was a very like acne ridden kid at some point. Aww. And it was a rough time from like probably age 16 to 21. Those were like five really hard years. And that made it hard to get acting work professionally. 
and at the same time, I was also getting back into like theater in my high school and was realizing, oh, that's something I haven't been able to do because after school every day, I was leaving school, right. run, running to the city, meeting my dad in the city. He was taking me to auditions and stuff like that. And so I kind of fell out of the acting business from a professional standpoint. So I have no regrets about that. I really enjoyed doing all that high school stuff. Went to, did an intensive program one summer at Northwestern for theater, got really deep into that. Went to college at University of Buffalo and did theater there for five years on a number of different productions and stuff like that. And then moved back home, came back and went back to work with my manager and things had changed. Like I had assumed that when I got back that like I would literally pick up where I left off. When I was like, when I was like 14, 15 years old, I had a manager and I, and my manager worked with different talent agents. So if one agent didn't get the call for a project, another agent would get a call for the project. So I would get all of these different opportunities that would then be funneled through my manager. And then when I got back, it seemed like that was no longer the situation. I don't know whether it was because I was no longer a kid or because the dynamics of the industry had changed, but now it was kind of like, no, you sign with one agent and you can't do all this like freelancing with a bunch of different agencies. Sure. So I came back to the city and started working with my manager again, immediately signed with a commercial agent. And that was relatively successful. I was being sent out on auditions all the time. And I would occasionally book something, but the rate of success was pretty low. Okay. I could not get what they call a legit agent, which is an agent that kind of just focuses on TV and film as opposed to commercials. I could not get signed to an agent to save my life. Why do you think that was? I, it's really hard for me to say. I mean, I think with commercial auditions, I think they're more willing to take more risks with people because the work is so, you know, you go into these audition rooms you get the script. If you're lucky, you get the script the night before, but a lot of times you get the script when you get there to okay. the audition. You get the script, you look at it, you read it over, you try to internalize it, figure out what you're going to do. And then you go into the room and you do it and you leave and you forget about it. And my, my perspective was all, uh, with all that has been like, they're just throwing a bunch of shit at the wall and let's just see what sticks. And I also knew from a relatively early age that if I didn't get a commercial, it probably wasn't really about me. Okay. It was about, in terms of my acting quality, like it, it, it could have been, but it could have also been how I looked next to the other person that they wanted to hire, how these two people look together, or sometimes people don't know what they want. And I know that because there are times where I auditioned for commercials. And when I got to the set, I was doing something different than what I had done in the audition, like different lines, like, and I was like, well, then what? How did I get this job? My stovetop stuffing commercial, this huge commercial that ran for like over a year and was a really big success for me when I was like 14. I auditioned for a completely different commercial altogether. <laughs> and I literally did not know what was expected of me for that commercial until I walked on the set. So commercials are like this different thing. I think when it came to... TV and film, I don't know. I couldn't, I just couldn't get somebody to really invest in me. And that got hard. When I moved back to the city, I was holding down a day job. I was working for a hospital in a great job, but where my boss was like, look, as long as this work gets done, you do what you need to do. I trust you. And so, you know, I'd be at work and at 
4 p.m. I get a call from my agent. You got an audition tomorrow for Sprite at 10 a.m. I go, great. I go to work in my work clothes. I run to the bathroom, change into my kid clothes, you know, my casual clothes, pull off my wedding ring, jump on the subway, go to the audition, come back, change back into the clothes, go back to work. And sometimes do that twice a day. It was crazy. And so also I worked on 70th and York. There's no second Avenue subway like there is now. Right. So you're talking, you're talking, I think I was able to get from York to Lexington in 12 minutes. Sweaty as all get out, get on the subway. There was no city bike. Otherwise I would have done that. Right. Get on the train, run to Midtown, do the audition and then do the whole thing over again. It's a young man's game. Like it's a young person's game. I don't think I could do that now. I, but, I would not blame you for not wanting to do that now. Yeah. And, and all this time, I'm also doing a lot of off, off Broadway theater. Like I'm doing a lot of shows that are like the kind that you don't get paid for, but they're fun shows and you're enjoying yourself. I work for a great theater company that I, I still love very, very dearly. And I'm doing all this stuff, but like, I can't help but feel like I got one foot in and one foot out. Mm. Like, like I'm going for these auditions and stuff like that, but I'm also like falling back on this day job. And I'm like, am I ever going to, I'm really questioning, am I ever going to go for it? Am I ever really going to make a, make a go of this thing? And I remember I went to, I took, a, I took like an intensive, like a, a week or two, maybe it was just a week intensive with a really well, well-known in the industry acting coach mm-hmm. for TV and film. And because I wanted to get better at this TV and film thing. And I, I went to this class with a bunch of other actors. I worked my tail off. And I remember she was very critical to a lot of the actors in the room. And she was not super critical with me. And at some point she said, she said, honestly, she's like, I don't have much feedback for you because you, you're fantastic at this. She's like, you should be booking things all the time. She's like, I just hope this class has been helpful to you. I'm sorry that I can't give you better feedback, but you're really, you're doing it right. And so I was like, wow. And so on the basis of that, I quit my job. And I was like, that was like the boost that I needed. You know, talk about relying. I mean, the whole industry is about relying on other people's perceptions. Sure. That's talk, gotta, talk that's about this. Head. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, that's all I needed was for someone who has, who has the reputation and the authority to tell me that I could be doing this, to, that they believe in me to do that. Now, of course, so, so I did. So I left my job and I had money saved up. I asked my parents for some support, which they, they did maybe a little reluctantly, but still helped me out a little. And, and my wife was in school at the time, so it wasn't great timing, but I was like, now or never, man, like you got to go for this. Sure. Um, and so I did. And so for a year and a half, and this was, this was just before I think you and I met, because I think you and I met, I want to say it was like 2010. Yeah, it was either 20, 2009 or 2010, but 2010 yeah, okay. yeah, kind of checks out. I, I have a vivid memory of the first time we met. Juniors. In person, which was at Juniors, that's yeah. right. And Jessica and I were coming off of a, of a triathlon swim in Brooklyn, right, ne- right near Juniors. 
And that was 2010. That's how I date things in my head. Anyway, so I, I quit my job and I just focused on acting full time. And I, I got accepted into a very well regarded advanced acting class that met for one day a week, but it was for like a solid five, six hours. And then you would spend the rest of the week like preparing your work for that class. And over that time, I fell out of love with acting. Huh. Was was it a gradual thing or did you just wake up one morning like, eh, not feeling it anymore? So it it, it definitely wasn't, it definitely wasn't one. Well, I remember a moment where I was like, fuck this. So a couple of things is one that my, the conflict of my life as an actor has always been the balance between art and stability in that most successful actors or most working actors finish their job and then don't necessarily know where the next job is coming from always. Right. They, there's a, there's a percentage of people that are not in that category, but I was not one of those people. And then I remember being like, I've always wanted what I have, which is my wife, my kids, my, I like nine to five. I like a stable job. I like knowing where my paycheck's coming from. I like, I like stability and an actor's life is not stable. Right. My dream was like to get on a soap opera. And I was on all my children for a little bit of time doing some extra work and a couple of like things where I had a couple of lines here and there. And I remember working with some of these actors on that show, like the big actors, like I would talk, chat with them and they'd be like, I can't wait to get off this fucking show. I remember thinking, oh my God, you have the closest thing to a day job in mm -hmm. acting. Just shut the fuck up. And just, <laughs> I never felt like I was too good for that shit. Right. And maybe it's because I wasn't drop dead gorgeous the way these people were, but I was like, dude, do you know what I would give to wake up every morning and get to act every day just and do that in perpetuity? Yeah. I mean, these folks that are on soaps have the same, it's the same gig for 20 years. I am not too precious for that shit. <laughs> I could have found a way to make that work, but that wasn't what I was going to have. And so it was probably a year and a half where I just focused on acting. It was half the time feeling like I had to justify my existence to myself. And then it is show business. So there's a lot of networking that's got to happen, a lot of business stuff. And I'm not very good at that. Okay. Not very good at selling myself. I did the whole thing that actors do of sending out countless postcards with your face on them. This is what my next project is. This is what I'm doing right now. would love to see you there. I left some free tickets for you at the box office. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, no one came. Oh, okay. Like, that kind of thing. Like, I remember doing all that. I remember plotting all that out. I remember meeting with acting career coaches about these are the things you have to do and having a very hard time sustaining it. Then I was taking this acting class every week and getting obsessive over that work because it was something that I could dig into to the point where like I was having trouble sleeping because of it. And then I remember there are these showcases that you can sign up for. Basically, these companies that say, hey, has this amount of money and we'll get you in front of a casting director or an agent or something. And you can perform a monologue for them or perform a scene or something like that. It's pay to play type stuff like these. And these agents and stuff, they, 
or casting directors and sometimes they're higher level and sometimes they're like the entry level agents and stuff they get paid your money to sit and watch you for a night with no guarantee so, of anything coming out of that no guarantee you're paying for getting in their face mm. in a way that you may not get otherwise sure. and some of these programs you have to audition to get into so they know that you're not completely wasting these agents and casting directors times right you're not just um, some random you know, scrub off the street right so i remember there was one that i was going to be doing a monologue for and i worked with a monologue coach i worked with this guy for maybe two or three weeks on this like 90 second piece really a really good monologue coach this guy was really good really well like well renowned in in his world for what he did worked really hard on it i remember going to one of these showcases and the doing this monologue for this guy who I'm not even sure was looking at me. I do it. And I really felt like I gave it my all. And when it was done, he kind of paused. And he was like, I don't know. It was just too monologue-y. What the fuck does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> okay. He didn't tell me. And that was a moment where I was like, oh my God, fuck this. Fuck this business. Like, like I busted my ass over this for some guy to be like, it's just too monologue-y. <laughs> At the same time, Mike, I'm running out of money. You know, I, like I, I don't have much left. My wife is in school. Our, our health insurance is through the roof for the cost of it. I'm draining yeah. my savings. I'm still feeling kind of worthless and I'm no longer enjoying myself. So that was kind of the moment where, and I was still going out for commercial stuff, but that was kind of the moment where I was like, you know, they say to you as an actor, like if you can find anything else to do in your life that will make you happy, do it. Because you have to have the fire and the desire to do this, even through all of that stuff. And I ultimately right. felt like, you know what? I don't think I'm that person. I'm just so, imagining how thick someone's skin has to be to audition and audition and sort of go through the process and continuously go through the process of people judging you based on fairly unquantifiable things. You have to have very, very healthy ego to withstand that on a regular basis. Yeah, I cut my teeth on that early when I was 13, 14 years old. And the first few auditions stung. But I was told from, from that early age, like, you can't take this stuff personally. And when it was commercial stuff, I didn't. But when you get older, and when you have quit your job, and when you now need these auditions, one, I think they can smell the desperation on you. It wasn't like I was working at my day job, getting a call. Oh, okay, audition tomorrow. Great. Okay, back to my day job. Okay. Oh, tomorrow morning. Okay, day job, day job, day job. Quick, quick change. Go audition, come back. Forget about it. Right. Now, now I'm sitting around like, oh my God, I got this audition tomorrow. Like, you don't know when the next audition's coming. You got to make this happen. Like, so that, that I'm so, sure that also amplifies your anxiety when you're sitting around waiting for the call as opposed to having something else to do. And yeah. the call just kind of randomly comes in. Absolutely. And, you know, I got to be honest with you, 
even when I booked stuff, the high of it was never as high as I thought it would be, mm. which is weird. I remember booking a commercial for Nike. Jessica and I were in the car about to drive out of town. I got the call and I was like, okay, cool. And I remember I hung up and Jessica was like, what happened? I'm like, I got the Nike commercial. She's like, that's amazing. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah it is. But like, I wasn't like, oh, God. Right, you weren't over the moon. No, and I don't know why that was, but anyway, these were all basic signs to me that it's probably time to get away from, from this. And so that was 2009, I think, 2010, but probably 2009. And it's been since then. And I really haven't looked back at acting. That was going to be, that was going to be my next question. Do you have any, well, you don't have any regret, but I'll throw that question in a slightly different direction for you. Do you have any regret about the time that you spent chasing something that you ended up not really digging too much? Well, first of all, Thank you for asking that question. And thank you for listening to that incredibly long ramble it's... of my life from age 14 to 30 <laughs> something. Like, holy shit, that was a lot that I unloaded there. So That's totally fine. But that's why you have an edit function. Do I have any regret about that journey? Sometimes, sometimes I do. But for the most part, I know or I feel very strongly that I had to go through all of that because I remember how strong the feeling was of being like, are you ever going to make it as an actor? Or are you just going to half-ass this through your life? And maybe, maybe that's my way of justifying it, but I, I don't have that question anymore. I think I even said something to Jessica about the other day. I was like, Oh, you know, if I wonder what it would be like if I'd stayed in that one job and just continued. I'm sure I would have booked some more commercials. I would have eventually moved up from like, you know, I was, I was playing teenage roles. I was going out for teenage stuff for commercials in, until my mid to late twenties. I can see that. You, you so at some point, are a youthful looking human being. Oh, thank Still. you. I don't know if I am. I, I'm not sure if I, I have no gauge on that anymore, but you I used are. to have a gauge on it. Like when I, when I was, when I was on all my children, I was doing work on these high school scenes and I was 22 maybe. And I remember like, like we would break for, we would break for the day or whatever, or like have a break for a couple hours. I'd, I'd say to these other actors, like, you want to hang out? And they'd be like, I'm sorry. I really got to get my homework done. I was like, oh shit. They're in high school. <laughs> they're actually in high school. Where was I going with that? Oh, so I would have eventually transitioned into mid-20s work. And maybe now I'd be getting some dad work. But I don't think I would have ever been satisfied. I think I would have just continued to ask the question of, are you going to really do this? Or are you just going to be an actor that does this commercial stuff? I think I really needed to know what would happen if I put everything into it. Sure. And I know that now. That's good information to have. You can say that you tried something or you went after something that you were passionate about. You did it to the best of whatever your ability was at the time. And now you've done it and you're not looking back with any sense of, ah, I wish I could have, or I wish I did. I think that's pretty valuable. Yeah. And from a music perspective, you've seen me play and that stuff has always been a hobby for me. And I never had any desire to make it a profession. 
Like I was happy to do it and get paid for it, but I was never like, oh, I want this to be my career. I was always like, no, I want this to be my for fun thing, you know? And every time I've seen you play, you seem to have a, be having a really good time. It doesn't seem like you're, you're not out there trying to, how, how can I say this? Like you're not trying to work the crowd like your meal depends on it. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Nor am I trying to be like, oh, maybe this will lead me to my next gig or whatever. Right. I've always been able to accept that for what it is and be totally, totally happy with that. And what is, what's scratching those itches for you now that you're sort of out of the New York City grind? You're in, you're in New York State, state suburbia. Is, is, is it suburbia or is it rural? No, it's suburbia. I'm not like in the country. You got to come and visit. I got out of New York City for a variety of other reasons. But what scratches the itch for me, I, I became an unexpected athlete, which is still a weird thing for me. To Mr. Say. I don't like, like sports. My friends still say, who would have thought you'd be the one doing all this shit? So now I do triathlon type stuff. And I get a lot out of that for a couple of reasons, because it's linear in a way that acting never was sure like i know if i put in this work that for the most part i will get this result out of it it's and it seems to me and i say this as someone who's moderately athletic what you do just seems so punishing <laughs> like, <laughs> i couldn't do it yeah. but if you're getting you're getting joy out of it you're also in better shape than yeah. i am so there's that <laughs> Now you're looking pretty good these days. You're oh, thank you. Good. I, you know, but not to I, say I would, you weren't looking good before, but right. I'm saying uh, you're looking pretty good. Nice cover there, Jason. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not like I, I am never in my life going to do a triathlon. I can say that with a fair amount of certainty right now as we record this, because that just seems so, again, like punishing. It, it doesn't seem like athleisure. It seems like it should be accompanied by a training montage it it can be punishing but i like it and you know it fits in with my life right now because well let's say this i've thought to myself you know what it might be fun to get back into acting at some point like on the community level okay like not like doing community not theater in a yeah, like local theater and stuff like that would be fun to do that. But my kids are of an age where I cannot be gone in the evenings for when rehearsals happen. When I was when I was doing the acting thing, I had rehearsals that started at 9 p.m. I'm in bed at like 9.30 <laughs> now. Like I had rehearsals going from 9 to 11. We're rehearsing to 11, then taking the train back to Queens getting to bed at 12 31 in the morning i'm too old for that shit you're such an old do, man jason i can do all of this workout stuff at five in the morning and not bother it no one needs me no one is relying on me from five to seven in the morning that's the only time i can do it so that it also just works for my schedule and i, I don't enjoy every second of it but the way i feel when it's done is a feeling that i wouldn't trade for the world. I know Jeff is definitely not a city mouse by any stretch of the imagination. Right. You lived in New York City for a relatively lengthy period of time. 
is there a part of you that's still kind of attracted to that at all or are you just jason or suburb mouse at this point <laughs> do we count queens as new york city is that I mean, it, you were li- where you were living in astoria it's quieter but it's not yeah. quiet yeah i i loved i loved every minute of living in astoria i really did i do miss it I don't necessarily miss living on Long Island for the, the couple of years that we did that. And part of that is because I worked in the city and my commute was 90 minutes each way. That's insane. And yeah, so that on top of working for, I was working for a startup company at the time and those hours were hard also. So I was often coming home and working more once I got home and, and putting hours in on the weekends and stuff like that. And that was all harder, like being 90 minutes. I mean, I got some good time to like watch Netflix on the Long Island <laughs> Railroad and shit. But but no, there are things I definitely miss about the city. Proximity to any type of food I could ever want in an amazing quality. And proximity to, to my friends. That's the thing about living where I live right now is that I don't really have any local friends. Not that I really have a lot of time for friendships anyway right now with my life but i also feel like at this age it's hard to for me to find the energy to invest in local friendships you know do you foresee that changing at any point i i, mean, I don't know our lives are very different and I can see if I had a partner and kids, maybe not having the space in my life to do some of the social things that I get a lot of value out of doing currently. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if the busy things that you do or the wife and kids sort of take the need away to have uh, sort of, whether casual or not casual, like friendly relationships outside of your home. I guess probably a little bit of both. I mean, I think there are people in my life, friends, where it, where the friendship is very easy. So it's like you get together and you can go to dinner and hang out. You can go do some activity and hang out, or you can just sit in your in each other's respective house or apartment and just watch TV. Right. or listen to music and it's completely effortless i still have friends like that but they're not here and even if i didn't have my wife and my kids in the busy lifestyle that i have maybe i would have to be like okay i gotta find someone like that but i it seems so unimaginable to me to start that with someone new and maybe it's just because the people I've met so far, it's not that kind of a fit. Sure. You know, it's hard to separate it, right? Because where I am in my life right now, it would optimally be someone that had kids the same age, you know, our friend, Michael Parr, right? Sure. Michael and I, we have kids pretty much the same age. You know, we have similar interests and things like that. If he was local, like we would have that. And he and I, get along great. My wife and his wife get along great. All four of us get along great. Before we had kids of this age together, we did shit tons of stuff together. Like if he was local, you know, 
Right. That would be someone, for example, where it would just be easy, you know, but I don't know who that person is. And maybe it's at the time that I met him, I had more time to invest in that. Sure. I mean, pre-kids. Yeah, right. Look, again, I'm someone who does not have kids, but I certainly understand that raising children condenses your available time significantly. Unless you're fortunate enough to have the means to have people take care of your kids for you, which doesn't necessarily bode well for your kids. Right. Or the friends that you have have kids of a similar age so that they can go off and do their own thing. When we lived on Long Island, that's probably the one thing I really miss about Long Island is we had one, we had we had a couple that we knew where our daughters were within days of each other being oh. born and our sons were within days of each other being born. And that was all coincidence. And they all got along great. So that was like perfect, perfect. Right. Like the adults could hang out and the kids could hang out and they could hang out the four of them or just two, two and two together. And that kind of thing was easy, but there's a lot of variables in there. Mm-hmm. Like the, the older kids got to get along. The younger kids got to get along. You got to find some sort of match with the parents. Like there's a lot of different things that have to happen now. And, and maybe that will change when the kids get older and want nothing to do with us. I mean, there's no guarantee that that'll happen. It could be. I don't know. I just, I listen to your podcast with Jeff and, you know, I talked to Jeff about all the stuff that he goes through with his kids and stuff. And I feel like he's there with like a finger being like, it'll happen to you. You know, and I don't know. If it, I, you know I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if it will, but he's got more time in his life now for adult friendships. Right. You know, he's got adults that he can hang out with. So maybe that will happen at some point. That is something I definitely feel like I'm missing. Um, you know, cause my wife can, and, and some of it's gotta be me because my wife can do it. She's much more outgoing than I am. And I become more of the introvert when the two of us are together. She's more extrovert in a lot of ways than I am. So she has a number of people that I think she would call like really true friends up here. I don't have that. And I'm not, I guess I said I'm missing it, but I'm also not super hungry for it right now. Sure. Is, do you think that's an extrovert introvert thing? Or do you think that's a female male thing? I want to say it's an extrovert introvert thing, but you might be right. It kind of goes back to thinking about like, okay, so for me to find the male friendship, I have to find somebody who is, I think is on the same sensitive level that I'm at. Right. 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 There are a number of people that I know that I love chatting with, but I also know that they're big, big drinkers. So I'm like, I don't think you and I are going to fall in love. Like, I mean, if the, if the initial or if the primary basis of the, if if the primary thrust of the relationship is based on drinking, then obviously it's, it's not a match. Yeah. 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 Right. I mean, if drinking is something tertiary, I mean, I drink, you don't. Yeah. But that's okay because you and I can have incredibly like open and honest and sensitive and vulnerable conversations. And so maybe it is, maybe, I don't know, females presumably are, are more likely or, or predisposed to be able to have those kinds of conversations without the same traditional masculine guards right. up, you know? Right. Which, so, I, I mean, mean, 
I mean, we've certainly had to do repair. You know, the last time I saw you in person was, <laughs> it'll always stick in my head because we were walking in different directions down Broadway. And. Oh my yeah. gosh, I forgot about this yeah. guy, keep going. I don't know who saw each other first, but I saw you. And even knowing that we were not exactly getting along at that point, I was still like instinctively like, oh, hey, Jason. And I feel like you just kind of like grunted at me and like continued walking. It's possible. I was very hurt by our, by our breakup at the time. In my head, I'm do like, we, oh, well, it's somebody's fault, right? But maybe it's not anybody's fault. Maybe it was just sort of time and circumstances. And politically and personally, it was a very heated time period. And, yeah, and we, can, we, can provide, we can provide some context for yeah. our... For your listeners, if they want to know, I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, it was it was right around uh, the election in 2016. And I was very much feeling like many of my white friends, how do I put this, just kind of didn't value or didn't understand the struggle and the frustration that many non-white people and you know to a lesser extent women to to a lesser extent people in the lgbtqia community felt when trump got elected and for me it wasn't an immediate it wasn't just like oh trump got elected people are being shitty like i'm not going to talk to these people anymore like there was a buildup and for me the buildup felt like in our you know in our group of friends always having to be or feeling like I always had to be the black guy, or well, feel I was, I was, but feeling like my POV wasn't taken seriously or considered, and I think the election was just kind of like the last straw, and I I, I blew up a lot of relationships in in those couple of months, and some of them I felt were worth sort of apologizing or you know coming to some kind of of, of resolution because I. Ultimately, I value some of the people and I wanted to make amends with some of those people. But that moment in time is still very sensitive to me. And, you know, the idea of me being a person of color that takes up space in a lot of not person of color places is still something I'm very sensitive about. I don't think I would explode the way that I did in 2016, in 2021. And I think also that you and I and me and a lot of other people that I, I fell out with at the time now have a greater, more understanding lane of communication to talk about this stuff. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing it from your perspective. Yeah, I, I think I wrestled with it a lot at the time, which was funny because it's not like you and I were super, super close. I mean, we, yeah. we saw each other for lunch every so often and it was, it was not funny, but it was interesting because at the time, and I remember when it was, it was like November or December, it was after the election. And I, I had made a conscious decision to stop using Facebook. And I don't know if it was a result of, of the election. I do remember being in some charged conversations as I was trying to understand others' positions, because I was definitely operating from a less conscious place of, of privilege at the time. So definitely being privileged, definitely not fully understanding how that privilege manifested itself in the world, 
not being that aware of it. There were some a couple of times on Facebook where I did speak up, and I think you even commented on a couple of those posts at the time that like I wound up getting like so much blowback from people I knew who were married to cops and stuff like that. And it was like really weird. But I, that wasn't all of it for me. I remember just feeling like Facebook was toxic and I needed to get off of it. And I remember I had to go back on Facebook for some reason. And I remember going through my friend list. I think I was actually about to promote a gig for December. And I went on to start inviting people. And I remember thinking, oh, I want to invite Mike to this and being like, oh shit, he's not my friend. Well, he's not my friend list. What, what the fuck? And I didn't know what happened. And then we, we kind of talked about it. I don't know if I would say like not a great way, but we talked about it over email and stuff like that. And like, I understood where you were coming from, but I also felt like, well, well wait a minute. I, I, I am trying to work through some of this stuff. Although admittedly now I can say I was not working through it the way that I try to work through it now. And it felt to me like you were coming from a place of like, well, your silence is complicit you know, silence is complicity. And I was like, I'm just not using this platform at the time. I get it now. I wish I could have understood it better, but I hate saying that because then it puts, it puts the responsibility on you to explain that to me. But like, I just felt like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I get it. I, at that time, I was not in a space where I wanted to, like, I feel like I've spent, I've spent so much time explaining. Yeah. You're exhausted. Yeah. Yes. I was just like, okay, if people aren't getting it by now, fuck this and fuck them. For sure. Um, And, uh, you know, with five years uh, hindsight, I may have tried to approach things from more of an individual perspective as opposed as opposed to a collective just like screw everybody because I mean ultimately I blew up my relationships at temporarily with all of you I, I didn't speak to Jeff for a long time I didn't speak to Michael for a long time you know seeing Jeff in person this past June was the first time I've seen any of you in in five years in person so you know it, it I, See, but that was but but that was a weird thing because I remember going to Jeff and Michael about it at the time, and I don't think you had unfriended them. So I definitely, I mean, Jeff. I'm still not Facebook friends with Jeff. So yeah, well, he left Facebook a million years ago. Well, maybe no, he did. His profile's still there. I remember feeling like it was just me. Okay. Maybe that was not right, but it was not just you. Yeah, but again, hindsight is a hell of a thing, and I think it's kind of interesting that in light of everything that happened last June, that's right around the time we started talking to one another again. Yeah. So a little bizarre irony there. And, you know, look, I am not going to rank friendships, particularly on a podcast. You know, I had certainly closer friendships with others than I had with you. I still valued then and value now you as a friend. I'm significantly more open about it now. But the one time we were all at, at Michael and Christine's house, and yep. like you came and you like sat next to me and you like put like your head on my shoulder or something like that. And I was just like, this is like the sweetest thing. Like, I, I feel like I, my affection for you grew like tenfold in that moment. Aww. So I definitely had a, a love and a warmth for you even then. For better or for worse, I consider a lot of people good friends, but I considered you, you know, someone important in my life, which is, I think, why I took it so hard to not feel supported 
you know, in that moment. I think that's fair. I think that's totally fair. And I think I would handle that differently now as well. You know, I'm incredibly grateful that you reached out in the way that we wound up kind of getting back together. And then I remember we jumped on a FaceTime together and kind of worked out some stuff. And I know I've definitely put the onus on you to help explain some things to me. Which if you care about somebody and you think that they're making an effort to learn, it's not a big deal. Like that's kind of what we should be doing with hopefully the other person understanding that this is emotional labor. But if you know that the person you're giving this to is understanding and appreciative of it, then ultimately it's still my choice whether to do it or not, but I'm not going to feel bitter about doing it if if I know that it's being appreciated. Yeah, well, it's something I try, I consciously try not to abuse, but you know, look, I live in a community here that is incredibly white and I don't like that about it. And I'm more conscious of that (laughs) more than ever you know, when I take my kid to soccer practice and I'm like, ah, so white, (laughs) like, you know, it just is. And I, you know, I'm in that, you know, so, so that's why I come to you with questions about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm conscious of like, I hope I'm not making this harder on him to ask him questions about this because I not, not to make you like that black friend. If I felt a certain way about it, our relationship was at the point where I would tell you like, Jason, I, I'm not answering this question right now. Yeah, and that's fine. And I would respect that. Right. Um, I mean, I would try to say it as nicely as possible. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like I've grown to the point where if something is too much for me, I have the language and the confidence to say, hey, this is too much for me. And there will be no love lost. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We can talk about George Michael. We can talk about whatever. But also, I think a lot of the reason that we collectively are in the place that we are is because people are afraid to have conversations that can be laborious and can be difficult. And everybody is sort of walking on eggshells. And I think in order for things to improve, people have got to step on those eggshells with forethought and reason and sensitivity. And that's a super, super delicate balance. Yeah, I think where I try to come from now is is never trying to never forget the privilege that I hold in in as many different situations as possible, whether it's in the different intersectionalities that I hold as a cis person, as a straight man, as a man, as a white man. Like right. I got I got all the majorities. Right. Like I, yeah, you know, I mean you're you know, a, a cis straight white able-bodied man. Able-bodied, that's the one I forgot. Yes, exactly. So I, I hold all the privilege. And that is something that like in 2016, when we fell out, like I was really not aware of. I probably took the more ignorant stance of like, well, it's not my fault that I have all of these things, but not having enough awareness of how much that has made my life infinitely easier. easier. And that's something that I don't, I don't think I'll ever forget you know, be it in the work that you do to make everyone conscious of what people of all different walks of life, of all different intersectionalities are going through. You know, working in DEI work, my job has been helpful to me. Sitting in on working with transgender groups has 
and, and, and having transgender people that I know, that kind of thing has also been really helpful. I don't even think I really knew much about what intersectionality was more than a year ago. Sure. You know, when I did some courses with, with the Transgender Training Institute for a week last year, and I was like, oh, oh, shit, there's a lot here that I just have not taken the time to think about. It's ironic I'm talking about this because I'm thinking about how much I've had to listen. And all I've done is talk about myself on this podcast for the past couple of hours. But but it's about you. So you should be talking yeah. about yourself. Yeah, I guess so. But I'm really glad that you brought this up because I don't want to forget what it was like for you, as well as what it was like for me at that time that that we had our falling out. And also how awesome it is that we were able to come back from that and be where we are now and be having this conversation today and be talking about music every month on a podcast and being able to just text each other and say, hey, I love you. When I talk about lamenting, not having my physical geographical friendships here, you know, that's a bummer to me, but I'm also well aware of how lucky I am to be able to text you and say, I love you. And to have a relationship where I can say those words and not have to say the word man. Right. After. I love you, dude. I love you, dude. I love you, man. But I can legitimately. And again, that's probably something that I actually do think I get from my dad of him not being afraid to say, I love you or kiss. Like I watched this man growing up, kiss his male friends on the lips whenever he saw them, whether they were comfortable with it or not is not the question, but you know, he's, he's, <laughs> He's that kind of guy, you know, and I've got that with you. And I've got that with uh, not necessarily the kissing on the lips, but the I love you, the genuine I love yous that come from an open, like, this is me. I don't have to like patch on the back when I say it. Right. We don't have to fist bump. No, I can just genuinely look at you and say, I love you. Right. And mean, and mean that and explore what that means right. without it being a fist bump. Yeah. Right. I did want to ask, and we've been talking forever, but I did want to ask, how does having a younger brother figure into this equation at all? Like, I, I certainly don't know Ryan anywhere near as well as I know you. I've met him a couple of times and we follow each other on social media. We've had a couple of conversations here and there. And I think we even had a couple of conversations when you and I were not speaking, but I don't know much. I've only seen the two of you together at the same time once. I love my brother very, very much. And I am very openly loving and affectionate with him in that like when we are together, we tell each other that we love each other. And when we are together, I am all over that that boy. Like I like I have my arms draped around him. I am hugging him. I am kissing him. Like I love him so much. Somebody smaller than you. Huh? Is yeah. somebody smaller than you? <laughs> And don't think I let him forget that. <laughs> Smaller than me with a receding hairline. I know that if he hears this, he'll feel bad about me saying this, but I, man, I just wish he was, I wish he was closer. I do not get to see him nearly enough. And I feel like if we were in the same area, I would see him all the time, whether he wanted that necessarily or not, but my kids adore him. They love him to pieces and I love him. And like, again, my wife and I have been together 25 years. Like, she knew him when he was like, he, when we started dating, he was like 10 wow. or 11. So she's known him since he was almost my daughter's age. Right. 
it's fucked up. But I mean, that's know, what happens so, with time. Right, right. I love everything about him. We're so different. We have like similar interests that are just a little weird. Like I'm a musician, but I just play cover tunes. He's a musician that plays exclusively originals. Right. He'll listen to the stuff that I listen to, but I have a harder time listening to some of the stuff that he listens to. He's into way more out there shit than I am. We both love cycling, but I love riding a road bike on pavement and he likes riding bikes up mountains, mountains. into yeah. dirt and gravel yeah. and shit. And I'm like, boys, like, how can we be so similar, but so not similar? <laughs> it's, like, it's like, it's the straight road down. And then it just kind of like traveling the same path, just on different sort of streets, yeah. kind of. Yeah. I feel like if he was, if we were near each other, we would hang out all the time on those variety of easy levels and we would be closer than we are. We text relatively often. I'm hoping to see him maybe even like next weekend. I talked in the beginning of this podcast about my my son, like antagonizing my daughter. <laughs> you know, we can have those types of things too that end up with us wrestling each other on the floor. But I much prefer now for us to have very genuine conversations about where we are with our lives and things, even though our lives are in very different places. And I can look to him, you know, there are times where I'll call him and I'll vent about something going on and he'll talk me off the ledge, you know, and that's, we're nine years apart. So I feel really grateful for having that relationship with him that we couldn't have when I was 17 and he was eight. I mean, that's a, it's one of those gaps that doesn't matter when you're 35 and 26 necessarily. But it matters a lot when, you know, it's 21 versus 12 or 25 versus 16. Yeah, that's right. It is way past your bedtime. Well, I, I, I've listened to a bunch of detoxes and they're all different. And, you know, I've had imposter syndrome in so much of my life. And I feel some of it now, like listening Why? to some of these episodes. You've had so many people on this show where I've feel like I've learned a lot from them. I guess I just hope that there's been some, that, that if people listen, that there's some value out of it that they get. And that I, I just hope it's something that's interesting to more than just me, because I haven't talked about a lot of this stuff, like really to anybody other than maybe my wife in a long time. It's, it's interesting to me. And I, I say a lot of times, like, I don't really do this podcast for anybody else. I do it for myself. Because mm -hmm. every time I talk to somebody, whether it's somebody that I've, I've never met before, whether it's somebody that I, I, I know more intimately, I always come out of it feeling like I learned something, not even specifically about the person. I feel like I've learned something about life in general mm. after every conversation that I've had. As much as I hope that, that people do take things from, from these conversations, I take something from all of these conversations and that's kind of you know what does it for me. Well, I would like this episode to get more downloads than the one with Jeff. We can work on that. We can work on that. <laughs> Jeff's episode actually did get a lot of downloads. Well, Jeff is an incredibly <clears throat> popular and well-loved human being for all for, and it was very nice what you guys said about me on, on that episode as well, but he is a very well-loved human being for a million justifiable reasons. Yes. Not um, most of which he doesn't necessarily believe, but that's his problem in ours. Yeah, no, no, no. He puts himself down big time. And I'm yeah, like, he's self-effacing to his detriment. Stop it.
Yeah. yeah. And I've tried to get away from that for myself. When someone gives me a compliment saying thank you, instead of trying to like diminish it, right. you know, but you know, I think what's great about, and I'm not saying this to blow smoke up your ass or sunshine or, or sunshiny smoke, either smoke or sunshine. But, but I think what's great about listening to detoxicity is that it makes me feel less alone because, well, obviously it's all emotion, but whether it's something about the path of my life, or even if it's like, like when I was training for my half Ironman triathlon, I had a hip injury and it's very easy to feel like you're the only person that's ever gone through some sort of emotional or physical or both hard mm -hmm. or mental hardship. And I think what your show um, really helps with is that like a lot of us are going through a lot of stuff and yes, maybe it is the way that we grew up and the way our parents and our elders grew up that make us feel like we're not allowed to share those things, but you give, you give the voice for people to express those things and make us all feel like we're sort of connected in that, in like a, in like a brotherhood, Yeah, you know, and that's incredibly, incredibly comforting. I mean, I think that's the thing that, speaking broadly, more people need to be aware of. And it's something that I wasn't aware of for a long time, pre-social media, to be perfectly honest. And, sure. you know, for many years through my 20s, I mean, Twitter came around when, 2008, 2009. So I was in my almost mid-30s at that point, thinking like, Am I the only queer person? Am I the only like black queer person? Am I the only like, sure. you know, like it, it's all of these thoughts that even more so than the sexuality piece, the mental health piece, understanding that so many people deal with anxiety. So many people deal with feeling, you know, worthless or whatever it is. It's like, oh, if more people specifically in our age range were aware of the, the commonality, like just the, the, the fact that you know, our experiences can be so similar in a lot of ways, it would just normalize all of this cool shit. Yeah. Well, I think Jeff may have said on, on the show that you had with him that, that he's in therapy because of, or, you know, in part due to you normalizing that. And I would definitely say that for me, getting back into therapy is something that I wanted to do for a long time. It's always like starting that's hard and finding the right match as well as with your freaking insurance and schedules yeah. and, and all that bullshit. But I'm back in it now. And, and I don't know if I would have been pushed to that if there wasn't you know a, a frequent useful reminder that we need well, it. That makes me feel really good. Great. And I am definitely like, I'm starting to tear up. So we need to go. <laughs> well, I, I thank you for, thank you for allowing me to be a part of this podcast and kind of talk about myself for a, a little, a little bit, even though I still feel it's, it's self-indulgent, but I do appreciate you being interested in the conversation and to be a part of detoxicity is, is a pretty big deal for me. While I love all of the new people I've gotten to talk to as a result of doing detoxicity, I have to admit that I get a special charge from exploring relationships of long standing and getting to dig deeper into that intangible element that draws people together and can break them apart and bring them together again. Relationship histories are interesting and I appreciate Jason being open to discussing our only slight our own slightly complicated relationship history in addition to his relationship history with various people in his life. 
I also appreciate Jason's vulnerability and openness when discussing his childhood and parts of his life that were fuzzy or unknown to me. Uh, Jason keeps a generally low profile on social media, but you can read his writing as old as it is at this point at popdose.com. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Jason Hare and on Instagram at Jason Hare one Hey, y'all. It's me again. Just reminding you to please smash that subscribe button if you want to keep listening to this show. Leave a comment, rate us, whatever you can to push us up in the rankings. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, if you love the podcast, if you would like to be on the podcast, if you know somebody who is interested in being on the podcast or who would be a good fit to talk about masculinity, please feel free to reach out to me via my social media channels. I am on Instagram as DetoxPodGuy, and I am on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph. You can even drop me an email old school style detoxpod at gmail.com. By the way, not hating on anybody who still sends emails. I am old school proudly and I send emails all the time. Uh, Detoxicity is produced and hosted by myself, Mike Joseph. Uh, The music for this podcast was written, composed, and performed by Calvin Williams. The logo for this show was designed by uh, Jacob Block. And I want to give a special shout out to Andrew Grossman and Jeff Giles for the inspiration to create this podcast. Uh, I thank you all for listening and hope that you're all keeping yourselves and each other safe out there. Take care. Peace. Peace.